Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Jack Watling, the Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute. He's also a global fellow at the Wilson Center here in Washington, DC. He, along with the entire Russi team, have done a terrific job uh, dissecting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including uh, the many land power lessons uh, that will help shape the future of conflict, whether uh, in Europe or in the Pacific. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Jack, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. And I want to start again by congratulating uh, you for your extraordinary work and the extraordinary work of your Rossi colleagues uh, at a very important time in history. Thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to discuss these issues. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our broader strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Jack, uh, thanks very much again for joining us. Uh, a, a true pleasure. Um, everyone who is uh, has been viewing this conflict over the course of now nearly uh, two years uh, draw their own lessons. And, and often uh, they're shaped by whatever agenda they're advocating, unfortunately. And I want to get to sort of an objective analysis questions uh, in, in, a, in a moment. But I mean, many of these are shallow, right? The tank is dead. Uh, Army aviation is uh, is vulnerable. Attack aviation uh, is over. Uh, the tank supposedly died uh, during the Yom Kippur War. This war has demonstrated uh, rapid innovation cycles, importance of commercial space-based communications, uh, obviously unmanned uh, and, and autonomy, long-range precision fires, um, distributed sensors, and intelligence uh, uh, fusion. Um, it's a bit like a modern version of the Spanish Civil War. If you're paying attention, you can draw a lot of lessons to prepare yourself uh, for what's to come. Uh, despite unprecedented sanctions, the Russians are still in the game. Uh, and, and indeed, Western microelectronics are making it into their uh, weapons, uh, ultimately. You've made the case mass is important, for example. And it's a reminder to everybody that, that numbers matter, whether in people, munitions, uh, or equipment. From, from your standpoint, what are the most important lessons from this conflict that people need to be learning, uh, not just on land warfare, but also to help us think better in terms of how it is we deter or potentially defeat China if we have to fight it. So number one, I would start with logistics, uh, often overlooked. But what we have seen in this conflict is that you, if you can see beyond the flot, the forward line of own troops and forward line of enemy troops, and Modern technology allows you to do that with great fidelity. You can now strike it accurately uh, when you find people's logistics infrastructure in depth. Um, I've been on plenty of exercises with the US military, with other NATO militaries, and I can tell you up front, in those exercises, we don't have a problem hitting our own side's logistics when we're playing against each other. That has now been confirmed in a real live war. And so we need to give real attention to how we keep our combat units refueled, rearmed, fed, uh, and how we manage our casualties. Because if we don't focus on that, then we will not be able to conduct the kind of combined arms maneuver that 
we train to deliver it and which is underpins our military capability. And, and how do how is it we need to think about that, right? I mean, if you talk to an older generation, the 21st Theater Sustainment Command folks, uh, General Shapiro uh, used to say that, look, I mean, in, in, in some respects, we're both going into, uh, uh, you know, different territory, uh, but it's also a blast of the past. We're going to have to distribute more. We're going to have to move more because anything that's fixed is going to be vulnerable uh, to attack. And again, as you noted, in a hypersonic era uh, with the kind of intelligence and open source intelligence we now can do, uh, it's, it's game changing. How is it we need to be thinking about some of these uh, problems and challenges, Jack? Because, you know, in... Um, there are a lot of lessons, right? If we can strike our own facilities, that means an adversary can do it as well and see see almost everything uh, at the same speed that we can. Absolutely. So I think the first thing is getting really serious about deception. Uh, while today's battlefield, both sides can reach out and hit whatever they want, uh, they can't do it again and again and again, right? When we start looking at those longer range systems or the amount of I-star you need to set up some of those strikes, you have to make choices about what you go after. And so creating a lot of false positives for an adversary is really important for your survivability, but that requires you to dedicate resource personnel and equipment to generate those fakes and for them to be realistic. Uh, there is also the point about movement and dispersion. So not staying in the same place for a long period of time, uh, dispersing so that there aren't a huge concentration of vehicles in one place. But that also requires you to have the command and control to deconflict those movements so that you don't end up trying to move across the same bridge at the same time, for example. It becomes a big road traffic problem, especially in a military theater where roads aren't in great nick. And so that's where things like AI and leveraging AI out of the civilian sector for command and control to essentially do a travel traveling salesman problem, right? Where do people move to when? allows you to protect the force because you don't suddenly need to have huge amounts of radio traffic to coordinate all of this movement around the battlefield. Um, I should uh, point out to people that they should read uh, the book, uh, A Genius for Deception, uh, How Cunning Helped uh, the British Win Two World Wars by Nick Rankin, which is a terrific book. So I felt like uh, I have to do a little bit of a plug there. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what we can learn from, from history uh, on this one. Um, very quickly, right, uh, the, the armchair enthusiasts have already ruled about, you know, uh, the future of warfare. Uh, the tank is dead. Uh, Army aviation is over. Attack aviation, uh, Army aviation and attack helicopters don't work. Uh, whereas a number of folks in the U.S. Army and the British Army have pointed out that's not the case. America, uh, Britain, Germany are preparing to send tanks to join the uh, infantry fighting vehicles uh, that were sent to Kiev. Sweden uh, today agreed to send 50 uh, infantry fighting vehicles and their entire force of 18 Archer self-propelled guns, which is a terrific system. Um, just very briefly, are tanks and attack aviation dead? I mean, what, what, what have we learned in greater granularity aside from logistics lessons about what works, what doesn't work? Or is this, as uh, strategists would say, depending on what you want to do and how you want to combine them is, is the outcome you get, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to separate the aviation from the main battle tank question slightly. Um, when it comes to main battle tanks, look, when people were saying, look, there's all these tanks being destroyed heading towards Kiev, there was also at exactly the same time, a massive tank battle going on on the other side of the Dnipro river. Right. Uh, and that was really important in blunting one of the Russian axes of advance. A lot of the videos I've seen where people say, look, this tank has been destroyed by another anti-tank guided weapon. 
sometimes the tank hasn't been destroyed. You've just seen the reactive armor go off and the clip cuts. Um, very often the tank is actually damaged and recoverable and repaired. Um, and also a lot of the time, those anti-tank guided weapons are actually being fired out of the barrels of tanks because this is something the Russians and the Ukrainians do a lot. Right. Why? Because it allows you to have uh, a vehicle with line of sight in the danger zone, you know, being visible to the enemy and survive while it guides that rocket onto the target. Um, and so tank engagements have been pretty prevalent throughout the war. Tanks have been very useful. I think the challenge comes where we probably need to change the priorities in our tank design. Uh, they need to be lighter. Um, if you look at the amount of infrastructure that can uphold a 72-ton tank, if it wants to trundle around Eastern Europe, it's fairly minimal. And we cheat a lot in our exercises by, in the command post exercises, doing things like draining the rivers so that we have more space to maneuver. Um, so firstly, we probably need to make them lighter. Um, and secondly, there are issues, I think, around mounting more and more defenses on these tanks to make them, trying to make them invulnerable when actually the lethality of the systems that are dedicated for the anti-tank role will probably destroy it anyway. Um, so, you know, there are lessons in terms of how we design these things, but that doesn't make them irrelevant. Uh, and it makes them really useful for things like urban fighting, which we know is going to be very prevalent. The aviation question. So firstly, Hostomel, where, you know, the Russians conducted an aviation assault, the aviation bit of that equation actually worked, right? They managed to get two waves of helicopters in, four if you count the uh, attack aviation that went in. So that's around 35, 36 helicopters in three waves. Uh, and they lost four of them, two, in, two on the landing site and two on the way out. Um, and they got the troops onto the field. So that bit all seemed to work fairly well. Uh, it required a huge amount of shaping and enablement in terms of electronic attack, suppression of air defense by the VKS, the Russian Air Force. Um, but it was a bad operation because they were put in too deep and they were unsupported. And there are questions around how often aviation assault is actually a viable thing to do, which are worth asking. But the survivability of aviation is not flagged up by that issue. The one caveat I would say is that we are seeing huge investment into counter UAS systems. And a lot of the distributed sensors that are relevant for countering UAS are also really effective against helicopters. And so when we start, and there are some physical limits on what you can do to protect helicopters and their signature. So as we project forward where investment is going and what it means, I do have concerns about the survivability of aviation. Um, but that's not they're not useful now. It's just there are we can we can see problems on the horizon that we need to be planning against. Um, let me. Um, I, I want to go uh, to uh, some of the other lessons, but it, it is important for me to ask um, th this one. Before the war, it was almost taken as gospel. The Russians were uh, ten feet tall. They were going to roll over Ukraine. There were some American leaders, um, friends of mine in, in uniform, even at a senior rank, who uh, said that the Russians really are a clown show and that they tend to get away with things because of boldness, boldness or just simply brutality uh, at the end of the day. What, what are some of the lessons that analysts, uh, as well as political leaders, need to bear in mind to make sort of more accurate assessments about threats and capabilities and dangers? Uh, because, you know, we've even gotten the red line question wrong on, you know, well, we can't cross the Russian red line. We can't, you know, really help the Ukrainians because, you know, Putin will go nuclear. And it turns out 
you know, almost every one of his red lines were actually a lot more flexible um, than than we think. What what are the the lessons the analytical class uh, needs to be taking? Uh, I mean, this? on the, on the red line question, some of us have been banging the table about this for a long time, right? I, I wrote a long time ago that uh, look that that the Russians didn't throw their toys out of the pram when when the Turks shot down one of their aircraft or when Wagner was hit really heavily in Syria by the US, uh, they don't necessarily look at casualties the same way we do. And we need to understand where their pressure points actually are when we, rather than projecting our red lines onto them. Um, so that that's one point, is that you actually need to understand what your adversary cares about, whereas a lot of the time our politicians go, well, I would be uncomfortable about that, so they must react as well. Um, and, and the Russians reinforce that. So there's another element of not buying Russian lines. In terms of the capability assessments, and, and I think we all got it wrong, pretty much, um, to varying degrees, there is a real methodological challenge which we need to get to the bottom of, and that is how you model friction. Because uh, I remember being in a meeting where someone, uh, you know, people, officials were pushing the line that Kiev would fall in 72 hours. I pushed back against it very strongly. I thought Kiev would be isolated in the first 10 days. So I thought the Russians would get round the flank on the, on the Western axis and it would be cut off. Uh, so I was wrong too. But uh, I was trying to make the arguments around all of the problems that the Russians would have to get through in order to get to that position and why some of them would probably be slowed down. Um, and the very legitimate challenge that was put to me was, okay, like how do you model that? How do you come up with an assessment that you can justify other than saying that some stuff will go right, some stuff will go wrong? Um, so that's the first challenge is that you know that some stuff is going to go wrong in a campaign, but how you actually model what is going to go wrong, which can be quite consequential in terms of the outcome, is a difficult thing to assess because I don't think we've got a good methodology for that. We tend to either assume that everything's going to go right because that makes a clean model uh, or we end up with this very, very wide band of possibility in the assessment, which isn't very helpful to policymakers. Um, the other issue is, and, and again, this is a methodological problem for which I don't think we have a solution. Um, when I was sitting down with the Ukrainians before the war and mapping all the things that we thought the Russians were going to hit with long-range precision fires, for the most part, the Russians knew about those systems and they had systems that could hit them. They just didn't hit them. And lots of the things they did hit it's not that they didn't have enough missiles to hit them effectively. It's that they just didn't fire enough missiles at them, um, right. which is which is like, okay, we're going to assume that the enemy is competent, right? And how do you account for actually the enemy making some real blunders in their planning? Um, that's really consequential because it it made the difference between the Russian am sorry the Ukrainian ammunition stockpiles being destroyed or not, right? Uh, so that has a huge impact on how long the Ukrainians could actually hold on in the opening days of the conflict. But it's very, very difficult to assess or predict how that's going to go down. You end up with this position where either you think your adversary is competent or you think they're incompetent. And whichever way you go methodologically, you're either going to overshoot or undershoot how well they're actually going to perform. Um, so... That's a methodological challenge that I don't have an answer for, but it's one that's really worth devoting some analytical horsepower into thinking about how we resolve those, those problems for the future. 
Uh, the, the the good news, Jack, is I think there are a lot of uh, folks who are, who are looking at it from that uh, standpoint about what is it we got right uh, and and what is it we got wrong in, in terms of some of these uh, estimations. Because, you know, you, you don't want to make them 10 feet tall. You also don't want to make them two feet tall uh, at, at the uh, at the end of the day. Let me let me ask you about lessons learned bias. Uh, and who's learning the right lessons? How quickly? Uh, before the show started, uh, we briefly talked about the Spanish Civil War, and I mentioned that at the at the top of the program as well. It offered many lessons. Uh, some of the nations learned them uh, well. Uh, Germany was one of them. Russia was the, uh, the other one. Germany applied them. Russia somewhat didn't uh, for a whole variety of, of, of uh, reasons. And there's a danger of confirmation bias in this, that military leaders will not be objective, but look at things and say, ah, you know, yeah, I'm getting it right. That, that backs me up as opposed to challenging assumptions. Um, who's, who's learning the right lessons? Uh, and how do we make sure we're learning the right lessons uh, from this uh, at, at, at the end of the day? Uh, so I, I think the people who are, destined to learn the wrong lessons are the ones who jump too quickly. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of people make premature assessments with partial data sets where they don't have both sides of the equation. Um, the British military has been fairly slow in coming to its conclusions, which is a good thing. Uh, and it's it's been reasonably sensible about trying to validate the data sets from which it is drawing that information. Um, I think it's also very important when we're talking in a joint force context, that this is a, a cross-government approach or cross-service approach, because I've certainly seen instances where one service has started to make assumptions about how things would play out based on the interaction that other services would have with the enemy. Um, and that's not necessarily realistic. Um, and so they're drawing some pretty false assumptions about how effective Russian air defenses actually are and the problems that they would pose, for example. Um, that's usually land force officers making assumptions about the IADS problem, not air force officers, right? You talk to the air force officers, they know exactly which bits of the IADS are going to cause them problems and which bits are not. Um, and so we need to make sure that we don't learn the lessons in a siloed way where we're only bringing our own expertise to that conversation. Um the Russians are brutal, but they're also a learning uh, adversary. Uh, and as you noted, they have a different view of casualties uh, than than we do, even when people talk about Russian mothers and everything else. Uh, I mean, it's a country of 144 million going up against the country of maybe 39 million. And the country of 39 million has taken an enormous number of casualties as well. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, the the Russians have retaken one meaningless town, Solidar, it appears, uh, even though Ukrainians contest that. And then perhaps a more important one uh, near Bakhmut, uh, Klish uh, Chivka. Um, both Ukrainians and NATO were sort of stunned at the organized retreat the Russians pulled off under fire crossing the Dnipro uh, to get out of Kherson. Um, what do you think the lessons are that the Russians are learning from this? And what evidence do we have that they're actually getting improving their game? Because the Ukrainians actually have started sounding alarms uh, about the Russian buildup, how they're approaching this and what the nature of this conflict looks like a couple of months down the road. Yeah, so, I mean, overrunning Russian positions has led to the Ukrainians uh, capturing documents from Russian headquarters and various other things. And when you look through uh, a lot of the papers that are being distributed to Russian commanders in the field, they have all sorts of technical and tactical recommendations that are being pushed down and across units 
uh, based on the challenges that they're running into, whether they be about electronic warfare, uh, communications, fires, etc. Um, and so I've, I've read through plenty of Russian uh, lessons identified that are being pushed to tactical commanders um, with explicit technical recommendations attached. Um, the problem the Russians are having is not their ability to understand the problem. It's the fact that they are structurally and culturally inhibited from implementing some of those uh, solutions because they have a very top-down structure. Uh, they don't particularly... Um, uh, you tend to shift the blame onto someone else when something goes wrong rather than accepting that, yes, I made this mistake and I'm going to resolve it next. And we've seen that with Putin's continuing shuffling of his commanders, right, to try and get a better result. If he doesn't like how things are going, he changes the personnel rather than letting them get to grips with the problem, make some mistakes, and then resolve it. So there's some structural problems there. Um, there's also a, a fundamental issue that they've lost a lot of their better people in the front edge of the tactical echelons just early in the conflict. And so when it comes to the recommendations that come down, it might be technically feasible to implement some of those changes, but the capacity of the people that are in the headquarters to actually implement that is significantly reduced. Um, what we've seen is an evolution of tactics that reflect an acknowledgement of some of the limitations of their capability. So uh, that that's not stopped them adapting, um, but it has limited how far they can go. Interestingly, forces like the VKS, the Air Force, which are obviously more centralized, and more importantly, they haven't committed their troops into the fight, and they're not trying to learn while they're in contact. Instead, they mm -hmm. can withdraw and pulse. They have tended to adapt quite a lot faster, which I think talks to the fact that this lessons process in the Russian system is quite centralized, uh, and again, reflected by the way that the documents are distributed around their units. So they're learning. Um, but there are also some pretty hard limitations on the progress that they can make while they are actually in the fight. What's your assessment of Russia's ability to generate and regenerate equipment uh, and manpower? And can more help from Iran, North Korea, and potentially even eventually China help Moscow win this? So when it comes to people, their training system was in a mess over the autumn because they had actually sent their trainers into Ukraine to fight. Uh, and then mobilized a lot of people. So it was being done on a regional basis. It was chaotic. They are starting to get to grips with that. And I think we're going to now see a more systematic approach to training because they've ironed out some of those problems. Uh, what they don't have at the moment is a huge amount of equipment to give those new units. Russian defense industry, you know, for a long time, the message from the Russian government was everything is fine. This is just a special military operation. Uh, and now they've suddenly changed the line. But the result has been that a lot of Russians who are factory managers, et cetera, have not, you know, they've been more concerned about not delivering on the stuff they need to skim off the top to keep everyone happy in their circle than they have about losing the war and that being more consequential. We're starting to see that shift. Um, and so as that works its way through industry and you'll see Russian industry spin up, then they may well start to address some of their critical supply problems. At the moment, I would see, say they're in their most vulnerable point where they are consuming resource faster than they're able to produce it. But we are seeing consolidation of their industry. We are seeing tooling being provided, which is something they have a limited ability to produce domestically, uh, shipped from China uh, and elsewhere. And so they are starting to probably refine, consolidate and build. I would expect if I was being pessimistic, 
that, and, and I think we have to be in terms of our own planning assumptions, so this isn't a prediction, but still, um, that they start to get that industrial piece ironed out by the summer. And so uh, the risk is that the Ukrainians throw in their reserves this spring, don't make sufficient progress, and then the Russians have new units with new equipment that they can use to counterattack in the summer when the Ukrainians have already expended a lot of their capability. Um, that's not how it has to go. The Ukrainians make, may make quite a lot of progress. The Russians might not get their act together with their industry, but that's certain. those are the kinds of risks that we need to be thinking through. There is a sense of looking at this as a frozen conflict, and the Ukrainians have done a tremendous messaging job and uh, minimizing focus on uh, the casualties they're taking and a much greater focus, uh, you know, and Ukrainian heroism has been extraordinary uh, in this conflict and the heroism of the Ukrainian people. Um, and uh, obviously, Western assistance has been absolutely critical. Um, Washington and its allies are uh, about to move even more equipment uh, to Ukraine uh, and getting more comfortable in helping Ukraine uh, retake Crimea, right? Again, once seen as a red line. Uh, Russians have suffered massive uh, casualties, as, as, as we've discussed. Um, and Moscow is sort of counting on Europe and America just eventually calling it quits and just getting tired of this and its attention waning. What does Ukraine need in order to win this, ultimately? Uh well, they need a few things. Firstly, they need the elements of a combined arms force. So they need artillery, they need protected mobility for their infantry, and they will need uh, a continuity and availability of armor. They have quite a lot of armor, but you know there will be a need to backfill. Um, so anyway, those are the core elements. Um, they will need long-range precision fires to remain available to suppress Russia's ability to mass by knocking out the logistics, which is a problem the Russians have not solved. They've reduced their vulnerability by pulling their logistics back, but it also limits their tempo and ability to concentrate. Um, most of all, I think they also need the, the training pipeline. So we're seeing troops trained in the UK, shifting to being trained in Europe for, at formation level um, and paired with that equipment. And that pipeline is really important so that they continue to generate new units. They will also need support with their command and control because they've expanded as a military very rapidly. They have some brigade staffs who are highly professional and competent. They have many who are not familiar with the, with the task of combining all of the capabilities they need. So they'll need some support in training the officers who are going to do that at a tactical level. Um, and then at the strategic level, I think we need to shift the conversation from uh, we're going to provide you this new package that we've agreed this month. And instead say, look, we as your partners internationally are able to provide this many rounds a month for the next 12 months. There's two reasons for that. The first is to give the Ukrainians a steady baseline against which they can plan on a longer horizon rather than them having to sort of guess what equipment's going to show up the next month. The second thing is to show to the Russians that we're in this for the long game. Um, and ironically, showing that we're prepared to protract the conflict is probably one of the best ways of shortening it. Because as you say, the Russian theory of victory is to keep going until we give up and go home. Um, and so if we make it very clear that that's not going to happen, then the Russians may reassess whether they think that's going to work. Uh, but what is the kind of industrial capacity, Jack, 
uh, that we need, right? There's been a scramble. We're not producing artillery rounds, UK acquiring Korean uh, equipment. Uh, I mean, we're drawing stocks uh, out of Israel. Uh, a lot of discussion in the Atlantic Alliance about how it is that we step up our industrial production game. Um, but we have been a little bit reluctant to do so, as we heard from the Army Chief of Staff, Jim McConville. I don't want you know, sort of more new old stuff. I want more new new stuff. But at the end of the day, if I'm sitting where Putin is sitting, he's looking at this and saying, well, they're not producing enough equipment, much less to fill their own stocks, uh, as well as refill their old stocks. And right, what, what do we need to be doing defense industrially on both sides of this? Because the defense industrial capacity is in itself a very powerful deterrent um, signal and weapon, actually, if, if your adversary looks like and says like, wow, they can build bullets fast, build stuff fast. And we don't seem really to be doing that. No, this has been the problem, right? A lot of uh, governments have been treating this as a defense-only problem uh, and you know, saying, we're not at war, which is true. And therefore, they've been saying to defense, you, know, you guys can keep donating your equipment and paying for this, and that's fine. The reality is uh, our industrial base is now underwriting Ukraine. It is also critical that we maintain deterrence against other threats, not least China, by demonstrating that we can sustain and protract a conflict. Um, and so... On that basis, it's important to show that we have the industrial capacity, and that very quickly becomes a cross-government problem of uh, permissions to set up factories and production lines for explosive energetics, other things, filling artillery rounds, hiring the workforce, training them, etc. Um, you're right that there are some systems that we can deprioritize. There are others that are going to be of continued relevance. You know, Gimlers and 155 shells are probably still going to be pretty useful in any future conflict. Um, and of course, a lot of the larger scale production capacity that you might generate to deliver some of those demands can be pivoted to other uses after the conflict. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say we set up a production line for 5V55 um, S300 missiles, right? That would keep the 40 or so divisions of S300 uh, air defenses that the Ukrainians operate going through this conflict. Um, we don't want those missiles. But there are plenty of other customers that the Russians previously have serviced who aren't getting deliveries at the moment. And those countries don't probably want to buy a Western air defense system because it's very expensive and they've got the sunk costs of what they've already got. If right. the Russians can't supply it, though, and then we can switch that production line to, say, supply them, then from a competition point of view, we're now removing a huge amount of both political clout and leverage, but also uh, economic income. Uh, from our adversary's military industrial base um, and making a profit on it after the war, right? So I, buy, I appreciate General McConville's arguments uh, about not wanting, wanting to invest in legacy systems. But if we think about this in a more joined up way, there are ways of supporting Ukraine, deterring our future adversaries and regenerating capacity, which we have let die out, especially in Europe for far too long. Um, and, you know, that's that's the game we need to get into thinking in the long term. I, I don't want to necessarily go into this, Jack, because it's a separate conversation. But, you know, the, there has been a massive focus in the United States on semiconductors and supply chains. Obviously, the CHIPS Act uh, is doing it. How do we need to be thinking? You know, you've, you've said a couple of times, right, we have to have kind of a more of a whole of nation approach, especially when it comes to industrial base. How is it we need to be thinking about the semiconductor element of it? Because the unfortunate thing is, 
our electronics are also making it into Russian systems, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're not interdicting that. It's making it into Iranian weapons uh, as well. How do we just need to think about the whole space? So a huge amount of the sanctions architecture focuses on companies. Uh, and I think we need to drop that as a methodology for the most part. The important thing is the people uh, and appreciating that these people who are doing this procurement and setting up front companies are committing crimes in lots of countries, usually export control uh, violations. And you need to start getting them arrested um, because at that point you deter people from thinking they can make a quick buck by cooperating but you also start constraining and wrapping up the actually limited number of people who have the expertise to move this stuff to the Russian defense industrial base. Um, so it's about targeting, being much more proactive in using intelligence to drive law enforcement uh, and making sure that we are targeting the people and not the entities because another company can always get set up tomorrow. By the way, why aren't they using SU-57s? I mean, they don't really have that very many of them, right? And uh, their their existing air force in Ukraine completely overmatches the Ukrainian air force. So uh, they don't have a need to. Um, it wouldn't get them out of the problem they have in terms of defeating, uh, suppressing air defenses. Um, so I think, yeah, mixture of, they have a small fleet, they're still working out how to use it, and uh, it wouldn't necessarily fix very much. But I just have to follow up on, on your red line question really quickly. Is there a red line, right? I mean, is Crimea, do, do we know what it is that constitutes a Russian red line, right? So there are those who said, well, moving on Sevastopol, moving on Crimea would be a red line uh, that would have Putin go nuclear or, or otherwise. Um, my, my attitude towards all of this is this was all Ukraine. Uh, it was illegally invaded. They certainly have a right uh, to uh, retake uh, their territory. Uh, I suppose at some point you can go back in history and say, well, you know, it used to be Tatar. I mean, you know, I mean, you can go into any, uh, you know, if you reach far enough back in history. But ultimately, do we know what those red lines are? No, because they're contextual. <laughs> um, but fundamentally, it comes down to nuclear weapons are an existential weapon. Uh, and so in order to deter their use, you need to convince the adversary that firstly, they're not facing an existential threat, yeah? which losing Crimea isn't, full stop. Right. Um, secondly, you need to convince them that they're not more likely to survive if they go down that route. And I think that's fairly easy. You know, if we're fair, very clear that we will retaliate and we shouldn't specify exactly how we retaliate because we shouldn't get into the game of allowing an adversary to price in the response. But we make it very clear that if you go nuclear, you know, we're not in the business of, of the world norm being that nuclear powers can use nukes against non-nuclear powers. That's not how any of this works. So we will be doing something at that point. And you convince the adversary that they can't control the escalation implications of that, then you essentially take any utility of going down that road off the table. Um, you know, if we were to suddenly start putting NATO troops into actual Russian territory, then A, it would pretty quickly become existential for the Russians, and B, they might make the argument fairly legitimately that, um, you know, our interests of nuclear escalation at a strategic level would justify them using tactical nukes to shore up the, the, the vulnerability that they have against NATO conventional forces at the moment. Um, and so you can see scenarios where tactical nuclear employment both makes sense and also 
Would we risk strategic escalation over that? Probably not. Would we even try and put our troops on Russian territory? No. So it's not an issue, you know? Um, And I think when you, yeah, when you start going down the decision trees on this, um, it's one of the few areas where the Russians have actually been fairly sober and consistently um, pragmatic in their dealings with the West in discussions, right? Behind closed doors, they talk about it in a fairly somber way. One final point I'd make very briefly Um, When you look at polling of the Russian public conducted by the Russian government, it's very clear that the Russian public views nuclear escalation as the most terrifying prospect on the horizon. When Putin is making these kind of comments on nuclear weapons, I think we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which he's speaking to a domestic audience and framing this as I am the one person who can preserve us going down this hellish trajectory, right, By, by by maintaining nuclear deterrence. Um, and so it's not that every time Putin raises this as an issue, uh, the Russians are contemplating striking us. That's just not not how this works. Indeed. And we could do, by the way, a separate portion. And you'd be uh, welcome, Jack, to join us on the conversation about how it is we need to be thinking about uh, that which is existential and not uh, in uh, a, a nuclear context. But I have to ask you uh, the question about China uh, and how applicable this conflict is to preparing us for China. For some, there are direct parallels, and obviously the Biden administration has made a very good case uh, that if we allow the Russians to succeed here, we basically give a green light uh, for the Chinese to move on Taiwan. There were some people in the Pentagon that were opposed to that kind of uh, thinking because they, from their standpoint, this is tens of billions of dollars they could be using that's going uh, to Ukraine. But increasingly, even those diehards, those China hawks in the Pentagon, see these as as linked. And if we do not help Ukraine win, it is problematic and sends the wrong signal uh, to China. From your perspective, what are the applicable lessons? Because some in Washington make the case, you know, that the the equipment that we're sending to Ukraine is not necessarily particularly important to the kind of long range hypersonic uh, conflict that's likely. Uh, to uh, uh, you know, break out uh, between the United States and China, say over Taiwan or anything else. What's your sense on what are the applicable lessons from Ukraine to China that can both help better deter or uh, help allied forces prevail uh, should deterrence fail? So I have to presage this by saying I'm not a China expert. Um, and therefore, I'm always a bit hesitant to, to get into my projections of, of an Indo-Pacific scenario. Uh, I'm also a land forces guy. And so, you know, I usually... Well, and defer- we're going to get to that in a minute, by the way. Yeah, so you're yeah, not I'm getting usually, off the hook there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually defer to naval and, and air colleagues to kind of set the context. But um, t- I'd make two points. Firstly, if we write down our capabilities uh, extensively in Ukraine, then yes, we may well expose ourselves to risk down the line. Um, I think industrial capacity is actually probably a more risky into, rather than straight up systems, but there are certain systems where you do have a, a genuine trade-off of risk, Patriot being one of them. Uh, there are other systems like tanks and infantry fighting vehicles where I think they are going to be primarily concerned in the European theater, much less relevant in the Indo-Pacific, although there's always the Korean peninsula. Um but there is another aspect to this, which is that, okay, let's say let's say we decide that we're going to stop expending resource in Europe because we want to concentrate on the Indo-Pacific. What do the Russians decide to do? Because if they continue pushing, which they probably would, you know, at this point, they're in a very hostile relationship with us and their ambitions go beyond Ukraine. Um, 
then you run into treaty obligations. And so, but a treaty obligations where you've actually ceded a whole load of ground, you have uh, not invested in hardening that theater. Um, and you've probably really fractured the alliance because other members of the alliance will be very unhappy with what you've done in reprioritizing. Um, and so it's not like there's a choice where this problem just goes away. Either you either you solve it uh, or you potentially get sucked into it on even less favorable terms. Um, and so from my point of view, we've got to win this fight. Um, it's it's fairly it's fairly fundamental as in our interests, and it's easier to win it now than to degrade our position further. Uh, but we should absolutely, in terms of our investment into it, the industrial base, prioritization of the recapitalization of our own forces, et cetera, make sure that we are prepared to maintain a sufficient deterrence posture for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I don't think that that's a I don't think that's an impossible equation, right? It's it's going to mean that we have to invest, but I don't think that that's undoable. Uh, I I, I uh, uh, could couldn't agree with you more. And and uh, the the other point I would make, I mean, to to your point, right? Russia's designs are much broader. They do include the Baltics. They include other territory if they can get their hands on it. And so the notion that once Ukraine is settled, let's say Ukraine takes all of its territory back, the Russians still will be a problem. So some of these systems you would ra- you would think are not as important will still be important uh, from uh, a European perspective, certainly. Um, from an Asia-Pacific uh, uh, view, however, Jack, you know, there, there is a view, I mean, even when, when you talk to some very thoughtful soldiers, um, you know, even though the future combat systems program was, was about landing troops in China and sowing chaos, I think people realized uh, that that's likely not a particularly good idea. Um, and, and what the reasonable, realistic role of land forces is uh, or are uh, in an Indo-Pacific scenario, right? But everybody agrees special operations uh, would be important. Air and missile defenses would be vital. Logistics, uh, as you said, I mean, the backbone of, of logistics is the United States Army, obviously augmented by the Navy and the Air Force. Um, what is the role of, what are the role roles of land forces? Because in some of these models, you know, we've, we've got agile units moving all over the place. The Marines are trying to do these uh, with these uh, Marine littoral regiments. But sometimes when you participate in some of these war games, these troops actually become targets uh, or hostages, uh, even in some of these scenarios. What, what's the role of land forces in a theater that is increasingly seen as an air and naval theater? Uh, so I think any conflict in the Indo-Pacific is not going to look like the kind of fait accompli operation that was attempted in Ukraine, right? Which means that you're not going to wake up one morning and all of a sudden the PLA are coming across the channel. Um, why? Because unless they want it to be a catastrophe, that's not how you do large-scale amphibious operations. You need to gain air superiority first, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, which means that this is coming in stages. And... A lot of those stages are pre-conflict, actually. A lot of those stages are trying to get into the first island chain through relationships rather than trying to seize territory uh, or trying to reclaim atolls and put equipments on them, et cetera, so that you already, from the Chinese point of view, have troops or access or political influence to keep G-locks and S-locks open in that theater. Um, so... 
The first thing I'd say is that land forces have a really important relationship building function, potentially solving some of the internal or helping to address some of the internal challenges of partners in the region where they might ask for assistance from our land forces um, and using that political equity to make sure that the Chinese don't actually win the battle before it starts. Um, the second thing is, if it does go kinetic, there will be a very frenetic opening phase uh, in which people will try and get themselves onto unoccupied territory as quickly as possible so that they can have oversight over uh, crucial S-locks and, and battle space. Um, and of course, some of those parts that are seized will be of strategic significance and a massive headache to air and naval forces, depending on where they are. And as we know from World War II, you don't have to assault every island, but some terrain becomes vital ground and you are going to have to take it. Um, and, you know, enemy land forces in that terrain can be pretty tenacious. So right. uh, at some point, you're going to have to put troops in places and you're going to have to clear ground. Um, and that becomes a joint theater access problem. And, and it's, it's a huge headache. Um, but one of the most unhelpful elements of that conversation is where rather than it being about how do we all further the mission it becomes one of uh well this is my theater not yours so my capabilities at the expense of your capability um even if it is very logical that one or two services are um leading the campaign design um there still needs to be a collegiate approach to developing the concept of operations because if there isn't then we end up in this knife fight with each other where we waste a huge amount of resources trying to justify stuff to each other rather than getting after the problem uh, it will and and it's also uh about mass uh right i mean you need numbers this conflict has shown us that this notion of sort of boutique number you know small small numbers of really exquisite things uh, can get burned up. And it's astonishing to me that we're still having this discussion, given the mountains of equipment that were consumed in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that that somehow, you know, we wouldn't be in a situation, you know, Germany has three days of ammunition, France had 10 days of ammunition, and Britain had more, but, you know, still not enough. And, and you know, and whereas if you went to Cold War tables, Sash Tuza on our uh, Sunday show regularly was like, you know, I mean, it, it, you just look at the artillery tables, and and what they're consuming is exactly what you know, in 1982, we knew would get consumed in a high intensity war. So yeah, I mean, really... that, that's that's been a frustration for me, actually. There's there's a, there are some people who come back and say, oh, the Ukrainians are being really wanton with their artillery usage. And you kind of go, well, OK, firstly, they don't have the same volume of protected mobility. So they are compensating for a lack of other elements of the combined arm system by using artillery that drives up consumption. But secondly, they're not firing excessively compared to any of our expectations if we were in this kind of fight. So, uh, you know, right. it's, it's just evident that we didn't have the war stocks to meet our own needs. Um, we've got uh, five minutes left, so we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, this has been uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war has been almost a, a battle lab uh, exquisite example of military innovation uh, on the fly under fire. What do you think are the most important lessons of about how Ukrainians have such in rapid capacity kludged old with new, striking deep into Russia, sinking warships with unmanned surface capabilities? What, what's the lesson to be learned about rapid innovation from your standpoint? Uh, most of the 
kind of very, very slow progress that we make is about process and it's about self-driven constraints, right? The fact that when we first built UAS, we classified them as aircraft and then we now have to certify all new classes of UAS as though they were planes and as though they need to be under the same level of flight control um, means that the burden for bringing new small UAS into theater and, and getting them up and running is huge on exercise and just the cost of that as well. Um, whereas the first things the Ukrainians did was threw all the regulation out of the window. And, you know, that has led to right. a lot of their planes piling into the ground because they're not safe to fly, right? Like that has led to outcomes which we wouldn't accept in peacetime. And that, that's that's just what happens. Um, but there is a happy medium. And one of the things I think we need to get our heads around is that so often I, I work with military officers who are saying, if only I could do this, if only I can't, I did that. You know, the regulations say I have to do it this way. And you turn around to them and say, look, if that's an essential outcome, who said that this has to be the way we do it? Who's written these regulations? And right. at some point, you usually find that there's some officer somewhere who's moved job, who's like, oh, yeah, we, we said it that way because we were trying to solve this particular problem at that time. Just change it. <laughs> um, right. And so I think we need to we need to get much better at uh making sure that our process meets the requirements of what we're trying to achieve. Um, it, you know, to, to the point, right. We do what we do because we do it, not because it makes any sense. Uh, and uh, you know, what, one of the questions I was going to ask you is right. Whether it's the joint all domain command and control system, whether it's the boundary between ground-based fires and air power, right. You can draw a lot of lessons from how the Ukrainians are solving these problems. Couldn't you? If you're looking at, at you know, like where, where do these boundaries lie between air denial and air superiority, right? I mean, couldn't you look to the Ukrainians to actually help guide you more quickly through some of these debates that we've been having for decades? Uh, well, a lot of those debates are going to be very, very context specific, uh, and they're going to be driven by what capabilities you have to hand as to where the handoff actually is. You know, when Ukrainian pilots take off, they usually lose ground to air communications. They then lose air to air communications and then they lose navigation capability. So they're usually flying at night blind and uh, and without comms on a pre-planned route. Um, which leads to a certain kind of integration in their planning process. That's not how we would do it. And it's a sub very suboptimal way of doing it. So I don't think it's necessarily about just taking the Ukrainian approach and uh, saying, well, they've got it right. But it is about recognizing the need for flexibility and, and being open to the idea that just because we've done it a certain way for a while doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. Um, let me ask you uh, two last questions. One is on uh, deterrence. Um, I don't think it's fair uh, to say that uh, Russia's war on Ukraine was a failure of integrated deterrence because the administration was sort of shaping its thinking and figuring out how to execute it. And many of the threats the Russians just didn't listen to uh, and and pretty much in short order, uh, whether it was diplomatic or economic uh, and certainly on the military case, it's been a failure, right? Finland and Sweden uh, may end up in the Atlantic lines. Not exactly what the Russians had calculated on. What are the things, how, how is it we should be thinking about deterrence? Because, Jack, it would have been a lot cheaper to stop the Russians from moving in than the cost that we're bearing with now that crisis has broken out. How do we need to fundamentally think about deterrence uh, as opposed to, um, you know, to stop somebody from miscalculating as opposed to doing the remediation, which is right? It's, it's going to cost, it may cost a trillion dollars at the end of the day to rebuild Ukraine. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think the first thing, it has to be adversary centric. It has to be premised on how does my adversary think? How do they get their information? And so not what would I find, what would deter me, but instead what would actually matter to them. Uh, and a lot of the time we do things which is activity, but it's not effect when we talk about deterrence. Um, the second thing is lead times and when you start putting it in place. Uh, you know, the Russians made the decision they were going to do this really in July. Uh, that's when they properly stepped up for preparation rather than just feasibility testing. Um, if you think about what we were doing in July 2021, we were completely consumed by events in Afghanistan. Uh, and so we didn't really start trying to deter them, uh, even though this was flagged as a major risk as far back as 2019, as far as like I was having conversations with people. Um, so we started very late, by which point they were a long way down the road to right. pulling the lever. Um, and they were pretty confident that they could do it. Uh, and nothing that we could do within the time that we had available was likely to be significant enough to shift their dial on their assessment as to whether or not it was feasible. So uh, we need to move faster um, and be prepared to take the cost, because it does come with a cost, of actually dedicating resource to deterrence when the actual threat is earlier in its gestation. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a really critical part. Uh, 30, uh, 30, last 30 seconds, um, we are sending some extraordinary equipment uh, to uh, the Ukrainians, and, and some of it is being captured by the Russians. A um, lot of star streets, a lot of stingers. After 2001, we worked really hard to keep those out of terrorist hands. Uh, and some European friends and American friends have a sort of expressed worry uh, how the Russians could take advantage of this, right? I mean, all you need is a couple of jets to be shot down, uh, and then all of a sudden everybody gets mad at their own our own governments or shares these, you know, and the Russians certainly would be happy to share them with, with the with the Chinese. What are the challenges associated with being so generous with aid in a battle that's very important, but that actually your adversary then gets enormous, your, and your adversary, and your ultimate adversary then gets insights into your capabilities as well? How do we need to be thinking about that as a time when we're going to start moving some even more sophisticated kit to the battlefield? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge risk. Um... Speaking of Starstreak, it's not just the Russians, right? It's been handed to the Iranians by the Russians. Uh, and when you look at how Starstreak works, um, it would bypass most countermeasures on most aircraft because that's what it's right. designed to do. Um, so if they can reverse engineer it, then coming back to your question about the survivability of aviation, that now becomes a threat that we need to develop countermeasures against or tactics to, to defeat. Um, so, you know, yeah, that, that's part of the evolution and it's always a problem. Um, but I suppose my, my response would be, okay, you want to keep some stuff in the tank for, for your own national capability. And I don't think anyone would suggest that we're not doing that. Um, but a lot of these systems were designed to defeat the Russian military. Uh, and a lot of them were at the end of their shelf life, you know, they'd been in storage for a long time. Um, they're being used for precisely the purpose for which we designed them. Um, and so I, that's ultimately that that's why they were made. Um, and the expectation has to be now that some of these technologies will proliferate and we'll need to factor that in. But the idea that you just leave them on a shelf and then 
use them yourself against the Russians when the Russians were a couple of years further on um, doesn't seem to put you in a better position. Jack, honor and pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Look forward to welcoming you back on uh, because there are so many other granular questions I would like to ask you uh, that we don't have time for. But thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it and keep up the tremendous work. And and the very best to everybody on on the Russi team. I'll definitely pass it on because this last year has definitely been a team effort on this side. So, uh, you know, pleasure to talk to you.